Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. So, Wit, have you ever thought about doing this podcast from somewhere else? Like, like where? Toledo? No, like somewhere not America, where nobody wants to bomb hurricanes, end abortion rights, go to war in Iraq, deny climate change, or discriminate against anyone who looks like me. Sydney? Motherfucker, no. <laughs> okay, I know, I, I know. You're referring to a, to a real <laughs> tradition. James Baldwin, or Gertrude Stein, Tennessee Williams, Richard Wright, Mavis Gallant, Diane Johnson, Audrey Lord, Shea Youngblood. There's been a ton of writers who have left America, both to escape America and maybe to better see America. Which is why we have invited two writers who can talk to us about the reality of writing as an expat. In the second half of the show, we'll talk to Mothangi Subramanian, an American writer who moved to India, where she also set her debut novel, A People's History of Heaven. But right now, we're going to talk to Deborah Landau. Deborah is the author of four collections of poetry, Soft Targets, The Uses of the Body, the Last Usable Hour, all Lannan literary selections from Copper Canyon Press, and Orchid Delirium, selected by Naomi Shihab Nye for the Robert Dana and Hinga Prize for Poetry. In 2016, she was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, The Paris Review, Tin House, American Poetry Review, Poetry, CNN, The Wall Street Journal, and The New York Times, as well as Best American Poetry. She is a professor and director of the Creative Writing Program at New York University. Welcome to the show, Deborah. Thanks so much for having me. So most of the writers we listed in our opening lived in Paris because Paris is the archetypal expat city (laughs) for Americans, myself included, you know, when I was a kid. Uh, When did you first go to Paris or become interested in it it as a place to write? Um, I remember the first time I saw Paris, I was in college and I went down, um, my my roommate and I were up in, um, we had semester abroad at Oxford and we... We went down to Paris just for a few days, and I came up from the metro at Saint-Michel, and I saw it was nighttime, and the lights, and Notre Dame, and it was just, I couldn't believe how extraordinarily beautiful it was, and we went right to Shakespeare and Company Bookshop, which is the, you know, famed English language bookshop in Paris, and I had uh, no idea then that 20 years later, um, it would become such a big part of my life. So, Sugi, I don't mean to Paris shame you because I know that you've been to Europe. I know you spent time in Berlin, which we're going to talk about later. But have you been to Paris? Yeah, not only have I been to Paris, I almost moved there. Oh, um, okay. Well, I want to, to hear that backstory. To write, in fact. Um, what around the time that I was leaving New York and I ended up taking a job at the University of Michigan, I have um, some family in France, and one of them had a vacant place in Paris. And they said, do you want to move to Paris? Oh, my God. And I was sort of like oh my gosh. And to this day, a variety of people are like, why didn't you move to Paris? But I think um, I had this idea that Paris was eternal and would always be there and my French family would always be there. And I mean, certainly that's the case. I think my window for that kind of dream is probably closed now. But um, I mean, it's, yeah, having French family and I have quite a bit of French family um, has been really wonderful. And a lot of them are artists and writers. And so that environment very much... um, pervades our conversation. They're very involved in artistic life there. Um, And so when I go there, that's a thing that I get to experience, which is a a huge joy. Did NYU have that campus? Like, Deborah, when you went there the first time, not that you would have gone there or anything, like, has that been there all that beautiful campus that you guys have? Oh, wow. That's a great question. I had no awareness of it when I visited 
that many years ago. I started going there in um, 2008, and yeah. the campus at that time was in the 16th. And now, of course, we have the building um, in the in the fifth. Okay, right I, I only know the building in the fifth, which is right in you know the classic dream of Paris. Yeah, it's nice. I um, had a place. My first time in Paris was when I was taking a year off from college, and I went there because I was supposed to to take a year abroad with my girlfriend, but then she decided not to and go went back to school, and that was the end of our relationship. And uh, <laughs> oh, so, gosh, <laughs> but I lived on Rue de la Place, which is near the Pantheon and near okay. Cardinal de Moine, and I used to sort of walk and I spent the night in Shakespeare a couple times oh, uh, you when did. George you were was still there. Weed. Yeah. Did you see George cut his hair with the candle? flame i did not did see you? that no <laughs> that's apparently how he um well it's not apparently because i saw a video of it he would have his hair cut with a flame um he would have <laughs> some young women set his hair on fire and that was how he got his hair cut you should tell everyone who he is and exactly why he um, was so important um, george whitman uh it was the um so a Sylvia beach had the bookshop shakespeare in paris um during the 20s and then when the Nazis came, that was the end of that. And then George Whitman um, opened a shop with the same name, um, different location, different shop, uh, Shakespeare and Company. And um, for many years oversaw that until um, he got quite old. And then his daughter, Sylvia Whitman, took it over and she is still running it today. Also one of the, I mean, just one of the great bookstores of the world. Um I'm realizing now that I'm thinking about it, that so many of the ideas that I've had that have st- begun the moments when I have notions about moving abroad are often moments when I actually see an NYU program somewhere. I was in Italy a couple of years ago and realized there was an NYU program. I think maybe I was in, maybe I was in Florence. Oh and yeah. Seems, the villa. <laughs> yeah. And I just, you know, it seems like a, a, an NYU thing and part of really the ethos of um, education there. And you're the director of the creative writing program at NYU, but Whitney met you in Paris, where you were directing NYU's low residency MFA Writers Workshop, which is in the Latin Quarter. Can you talk about your history in Paris and about how that, you know, realizing your dream of being there has changed your work? Right. Okay. So I should say before I answer that directly that um, you mentioned Florence, and we also have Writers in Florence, a summer program that happens every year right before the one in Paris at the Villa. So um, that's an aside. But uh, I started, I came in as director of NYU's creative writing program in 2007, and the deans were really interested in how we might expand globally. And so um, we started the program in Florence. We started in Paris. Um, I started first an undergraduate program there that for many years, um, we still have it. It's called Writers in Paris. It's a four week program for undergraduates, very intensive and immersive with wonderful faculty. And after about five years of doing that, um, it seemed the next logical step step would be to start a low residency MFA program there, which we did. And now I think that's in its seventh year and many of the same faculty teach in both over there and also in New York. Um, so I, first of all, I was really lucky to get to go and speak to some of your students that time that I, that I came and visited. I really loved it. And, um, you know, and it's right there in the center of a world that when I was young was incredibly, I don't know why I was so invested in the whole movable feast part of Paris, you know, like (laughs) the Hemingway, Stein, Fitzgerald, Josephine Baker, 1920s Paris, Para, you know, Hemingway had a had a place on Cardinal Lemoyne that wasn't. It's not very far from where the NYU campus I is. I know. 
I stayed right across the street from that the first time I came to Paris. Yeah. And thought about how he and his, they used to leave their baby, the cat, to watch their baby when they went downstairs to drink at the bar next door. So you were into it too. You paid attention. Yes, (laughs) I did know this. Why is that that time so fascinating to American writers? And I don't know if it was true for you too, Sugi. Yeah, (laughs) it is. Um, Yeah, there's a, I even have a, part of a novel set in like like yes that's set in oh, that oh i did not time. know that that's oh no so it's great. totally awful it's totally awful and it will never see the light of day but i mean it's very much embedded in my like you know my desire to be there um yeah that's never that's never going anywhere so deborah how did you like first... like every go ahead i i was just gonna ask like i read a movable feast and then i had somebody gave me a relative gave me a book that was like all the places that these famous writers hung out in Paris, and I just read it obsessively in my living room in Kansas yeah. City. How did it happen yeah, for you? Yeah, like, like, like everybody, I bought a movable feast the first time I went to Paris at Shakespeare and Company Bookshop, and that is apparently their best-selling book, or it was. Um, and now, right before we leave for Paris every year, I write to the students, and I quote from that book, and I, the part about if you know if you're if you're lucky enough to live in Paris when you're young, then um, you'll always have it with you no matter where, where you go because Paris is a movable feast. And it is. I think it is. Do you go by other places or landmarks that are important to you when you're there? Like, do you know, I don't know where Gertrude Stein's house was or any of that kind of stuff. Yeah, we used to do a literary walking tour. We went we went by her house. Um Mm, where else? I don't know. I mean, I've got lots of favorite cafes. That's a big part of being there. Let's hear it. <laughs> um, I like this cafe just up the hill from um, where our, actually maybe closer to where you lived, Whitney, called um, Cafe de la Nouvelle Marie. Do you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know it. I'm, I mean, we um, live cafe, in Lyon ca- when I'm in France, so I, I want to know okay. these so I can go back and visit them. I, I like Cafe Charlot in the Upper Marais nice. a lot. I like the Cafe at Merci which is a big um, old bookstore. And also they have somehow also clothes and um, housing. It's like a housing works, but in France, (laughs) you know, um, (laughs) for the French version. So we're talking about um, writing overseas as kind of a, a glamorous thing. And I wonder to what extent you feel like that is actually, is it glamorous to live overseas and write? I mean, I live for a semester in Berlin and I was at the American Academy in Berlin, much of which was glamorous in certain ways. Um, but, you know, glamour is not what <laughs> makes the words uh, pile up on the page. And how do you navigate kind of the appeal of Paris and still keeping your own inner life and writing world? Oh, right. Well, um, I'm there six weeks a year. And Paris is a great city for writers. It just is. There's so much to see and smell and taste it's a great city for walking it's a great city for sitting in a cafe and and just looking out at the world and you can sit with your coffee and no one ever bothers you you can stay there all day there's so many small bookshops the the book is protected in france they're serious readers so um it's a great city for writers and for me i'm there so much now it doesn't feel glamorous it feels like it is work but it's a great kind of work and um for one thing, I get an apartment without any of my kids in it. So that <laughs> See, now that's, that's glamorous. That's glamour. <laughs> and no dogs, no dogs and, um, and no husband. So that is good just to be alone in my own space. And um, I don't know, I think all of us who go there find it really productive and um, 
worthwhile just to get out of our regular habits and routine. You know, you're in a completely different environment and you see things fresh. And I think that's always one of the reasons to travel. And that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, all the faculty, I've been seeing Parrish show up in their books and poems um, since we started. And that's been really fun to watch. I think we do all get a lot of work done while we're over there. Sugi, I just want to bring out, I want to mention one super glamour thing that I did get to do with Deborah and the rest of the faculty, which was they take a barge and do a full like tour of the Seine at night, one night, and all the students and faculty get to ride on it. And it is, it's a bateau mouche and it is just fantastic. Yeah, that is the one glamorous, <laughs> that is the one glamorous <laughs> thing we do. We, we it's, I, I think it's actually a yacht. I'm not sure. I mean, I don't know a lot about it. Oh my boats. gosh. It's a big, it's a big boat. I, what's I was boat. on it, I didn't care what it was. There was champagne. <laughs> and, um, it's fine. And we, you know, we, we bring all the, yeah, we, we used to do it on Bastille Day until um, the Nice terror attack happened. And then it just started to feel a little intense on Bastille Day. So now we do it on a different night, but it, yeah, it is so beautiful. And um, we serve dinner and champagne and the boat goes up and down the river and everyone is together and away from classrooms and, it is, yeah, it's the one high, highlight, high point of, of the time there. It sounds pretty great. Um, I'm curious how, and um, I'm going back, I guess, a little bit in the conversation here, how your fluency in another language has changed your writing in particular, because I'm remembering when I was trying to decide, you know, did I want to get on board the, the metaphorical yacht going up and down the Seine? Um, I don't speak French, and um, or at least technically I don't speak French. I can kind of pick up a little bit. And I was talking to another writer, actually a cousin of mine who lives in England, and he said, you work in English, what would it be like for you to be surrounded by language that you don't understand? And that Angle hadn't occurred to me before, and I'm just wondering how your relationship with French has affected your relationship with English over the years. Well, I always think of it, John Ashbery, when he, he lived in Paris for many years, and when he started, he didn't speak French or he didn't speak it very well, and he talked about how fruitful it was for him or how um, enabling it was for his own work to be surrounded by language, but not language that um, he understood, and so you could sit in public and hear voices, but not get kind of distracted or snagged away from your own thought. So um, I do speak French passively. I read French. It just happened it was my language in graduate school. So, um, but I didn't know I'd be needing it. Um, and I don't know. I still feel when I'm there a kind of solitude in the city because it's not my city. It's not my language. These aren't my people um, that I think is, you, you talked about interior life or in, inner life. I think it's it's good for that. It's really good for that because you feel a bit apart from the city as you're moving through it. Interesting. Maybe now would be a good time for you to read us some poetry that you set in Paris from, from soft targets. Sure. So, um, uh, I started writing this book. I mentioned the terror attacks. So we were there during the string of terror attacks that happened in Paris in 2015 and 2016, um, starting with the Charlie Hebdo shooting. And then the, um, manhunt and hostage situation that ensued and it was very intense and then there was the there were the shootings at the Bataclan and the cafes we were there right after that and then as I mentioned the Nice attacks happened so all the pressure of that um meant I pressed back with poems and that's this book and it's um written in link lyric sequences which seems to be my um my way of writing these days which 
it's, I mean, one way of thinking of it, it's just one long poem, the whole book. It's like a, you know, poetry equivalent of a, of a novel. And so I'll read just three pages from the beginning and I'll pause between the, the sections. There were real officers in the streets. I should say, I'm gonna stop. I'm gonna say that um, the city was transformed after those attacks and I live in a little apartment in the Marais when I'm over there and, and uh, across the street from a synagogue. And years ago, when um, when we would go, there were weddings almost every, I feel like every day there'd be a wedding and another wedding and another wedding. Got to be a bit much actually, but my third book starts with those weddings. And then um, after the terror attacks, the city felt transformed and there were soldiers everywhere. And when I looked out my window, I just saw soldiers with guns. So that's where this starts. And I'll start again. <laughs> There were real officers in the streets, but they were doing it wrong. One winked at me, another was purely conceptual. One thought to himself as I walked by, you little bitch. Bulge knobs of their guns made them oral, made them real big machismo, even the skinny ones, even the abstract. A certain beauty in the duty of it. Meanwhile, he was broken, she was concussed, and we returned home gilded with what? Safety. In advance of danger, animals agitate. When the time comes, all this will be only shouts and disturbance. A breath leaves the body and wishes it could return, maybe. The news, rich with failure, dither, terror. The bloated moon in constant charge of us as vapor. And this did frame our constituency, even in our cozy homes, even in a painless state on the downriver, oh, oblivion, sipping champagne as another night brings forth, dancing its big plan, its damage. I had a thought, but it turned autumn, turned cold. I had a body, unwearied, vital, despite the funeral in everything ample with bodies, covered in graves and gardens, potholes and water, an ardent river we walked together, a wine and rising breeze. Much trouble at hand, yet the lilies still. Still there was bread on the plate, still wine, while the streets filled with refugees and the French stepped over them en route to patisseries, cafes. Massive powers that be, what will be. We smoke our pipes to forget you. And mildly now we bide our time, the violence and real cities under siege, but also filled this morning with coffee drinkers, office workers, taxi drivers, boys on bikes. Again, we came to rest on the riverbanks, finding a bloodlight flooding what we'd come to see. Oh, thank you so much. I'll stop there. Thanks. It's such a great book. Um, I really enjoyed reading it. Um, and that poem, you know, is really interesting to me because, you know, it's very different. It, it contains fragments of that mythical expatriate uh, France that we've been talking about, where maybe somebody like James Baldwin would go to, to find a place that was less racist than America, right? Um, <laughs> But uh, you're also kind of, there are elements of France that are not part of, and I can speak as somebody who has lived there, I think now five summers, 
my wife is a French professor, and we stay in Lyon while she teaches at a at, at a program for the University of Missouri Kansas City, where I teach. And um, you know, so there's some dissonance in that poem that I think is what makes it so interesting to me. When you say there was still bread on the plate, still wine, while the streets were filled with refugees, and the French stepped over them en route to patisseries and cafes. Um, can we talk a little bit about the less mythologized side of French culture here? Yeah. So the uh, the simultaneity of that really gets to me, you know, that in the last few years, there have been so many migrants on the streets, you know, people suffering and real humanitarian uh, strife. And meanwhile, yeah, <laughs> you see, I mean, I'm one of them, I'm guilty of it too, sitting in cafes drinking rosé, well, this is going on at the same time. And of course, that's just a, that's happening all over the world, that simultaneity, but it continues to um I, I can't uh, I can't integrate those two things and that that the that problem is is one of the was one of the motivating forces of the book for me this book that I just finished I mean the history I one of the reasons we actually did this episode is there's a great episode of this American life that my wife played for me where they talked about living in Paris and part of it was interviewing David Sedaris who was living there at the time but they also spoke to a, a black American lawyer who lived there who said that People were nice to her as until she started to get to speak French really well, and people weren't didn't know that she was an American, and then they started to treat her poorly. Oh, and, interesting. And the idea that and what I've observed is that in French culture, like American African Americans are has a reserve a special place in the culture, but uh, anyone coming from North Africa, anyone who's identified as an immigrant, is treated very poorly. And there's much less representation of those kinds of people in the French government than there is in, in America, believe it or not. And they don't seem to have much of a voice. And, and, and so that, to me, is one of the real dissonances in, a, in French culture right now. Um, Sugi, what was it like for you when you were in Berlin? Well, Berlin, um, I don't know. There was a lot of discussion about how Ber was Berlin kind of today's Paris, and I think Paris is Paris, so there's probably not much. <laughs> Sorry, Berlin. Um, I mean, Berlin is great. It is um, a very, I think, you know, it's it seems like in many ways a city that hits kind of the sweet spot of, um, you know, having a vibrant artistic life that is... Um, that is not particularly dependent on any one institution, which for me is always a sign of a city's health in that way. Um, you know, and I think in the United States, um, like there are cities where the artistic life is, you know, heavily dependent on museums and universities. And um, I think in Berlin, you just see a lot of public art. I mean, there are obviously the wonderful museums and, and universities and literary scenes, but there's also so many people doing their own thing. And it's, it is pretty affordable. Um, I, my Berlin's affordable? It, really? I did not know well, that. France I mean, is, I Paris is not affordable. I mean, may, Deborah, correct me if I'm wrong, Deborah. Well, I don't have, I mean, I, no, it's very expensive in Paris. And we're there either as students or as faculty. So it's different than if, you know, you're, if we have work brings me there. I'm not paying my own way. Yeah. But I think I should say I'm saying that thing about Berlin comparatively. I think that was the sort of point offered up by people who would say, you know, well, this is today's Paris. And there are so many people now who have moved to Berlin to write and freelance from there. And I think in part because of, 
um, you know, immigration in Europe, a lot of people are interested in writing about that and covering it and seeing how those communities are changing, kind of going back to what you said before about, um, you know, racism and xenophobia in Europe, for sure. Um, yeah, I think that's sort of my question. Anytime I think about where do I want to travel or where am I willing to live, you know, how diverse is it going to be? And for me, that's this it's been a part of my American experience everywhere I've lived, even in the most segregated cities I've lived in. So I'm always interested in how that's going to play out wherever I go. One of the apartments that I lived in had what I perceived to be a racist poster on the wall that shows showed a sort of exoticized image of a, of a black servant. And I asked them to take it down. And I, I wrote a long email about why it was offensive and why it was racist and why it shouldn't be on the wall. And they just they didn't get it at all. They thought I was crazy. So that was concerning. And um, I don't know if that's indicative of French culture in a big way, but maybe it is. I feel like if you're a Republican, you know how the Republicans got all mad at France for not wanting to go to to, uh, be involved in the Gulf War and in the war in Iraq. And they made everything freedom fries and all that nonsense. I feel like there's a certain Mm -hmm. element, particularly the sort of bourgeoisie in, in France that that Republicans would just absolutely love. You know, like they, you know, they're, they're, they're interested in, in, in material things. And they're, and when you try to have discussions about diversity with like fairly wealthy French people, at least the ones that I've hung out with, they just, they, they, this is, they get, I get the same reaction as your letter did, Deborah. Yeah. I mean, and I saw, um, I was with a friend who studied, um, among other things, um, yeah, you know, African-American classical musicians in Europe. And so it was interesting as we were kind of going around, um, I remember going into a toy store and seeing there were rubber duckies and they had um, a Native American one and they had a black one. And so there was a rubber ducky in blackface and there was a kind of fetishization of um, what in, you know, Karl May, for example, is is really big in Germany. Uh, and he was a writer who wrote about, quote unquote, um, forgive me, Red Indians, I think is the term that they, that Germans had used with me when I was there. And it took me a second to even understand what they were talking about. So the way that Americanness is understood um, as one is traveling, you know, the way that I felt sort of like even just looking at the shelf of rubber duckies, I was looking for a rubber ducky for my nieces and, you know, what souvenir can I get them? Oh my God, what is on the shelf? Um, Right. Right. That was the argument actually that the landlord made to me was that, well, they sell this in the, these posters in the fanciest shops in Paris. They wouldn't have a racist poster. (laughs) That was, power is is never racist. I had this very bizarre uh, experience once where I was jogging near the Albert Camus, like elementary school in a certain district in Lyon with it's sort of high up in the hills uh, away from the river. And, um, there's a public park there and a bunch of kids came down one of those sort of really, it's a steep area. So there's like these steep staircases. They came out of this park and down the steep staircase and all these kids were dressed up like Native Americans. These white French kids had headbands on with feathers, you know, like, like to be honest, like we used to wear when I was like in sixth grade. And I don't think people do that anymore in America. It was just, it was just a kind of, I was like, oh my God, what are they doing? And it was a very weird sort of moment. Uh, anyway, I have those moments at times. Um, uh, I'm curious how students in the NYU program react when they're in Paris. Um, well, I did notice that your student group was really diverse, the one that I spoke to. And, you know, what does it mean for them to be there? How is the learning environment different 
than they might encounter in the States? And, and do they act differently there than they do in the classroom in New York? Um, I think, you know, what's nice for our students and is that, you know, they get to live as writers in Paris. They're um, supported and treated, you know, they get a really intimate connection with our faculty and we have the most extraordinary writers teaching them over there. There's a lot of intimacy um, in terms of the mentoring that happens and the students, and, and thinking both of the grad and the undergrads, it's hard to, I probably shouldn't be conflating them because they're different populations. But um, we've had students come through the undergraduate Writers in Paris program and then come to the graduate program in in, um, in New York and then become writers in the, you know, at large. For example, Morgan Parker came through Writers in Paris. And, oh, wow. And then, um, I know, and then came to the MFA in New York and now is Morgan Parker. Julie Bunton came through Writers in Paris uh, and now, and then the MFA in New York and is now. So my point is that we have extraordinarily talented um, students over there and they get great mentoring and being in Paris is intoxicating for everybody I think um, in, in the way that uh, you know we, we support them and give them access to the city and um, I don't know they've been great programs so I think we can't possibly finish this conversation without we us asking you what is the craziest most glamorous thing <laughs> you ever did in Paris <laughs> tell us your secret Paris I- story <laughs> Oh, I, you know, I have, this is going to be so disappointing, but I don't think I do a lot of glamorous things over there. We're on a budget. You know, the, we already talked about the boat. The boat feels glamorous. You know, I mean, once Lillian Vernon was, um, she, she gave us a Lillian Vernon house in, um, in New York, which is the home for our writing program there. And once she was in Paris and she took us all out to, um, her hotel, which was the Plaza Atenee, which is, I would never go to that hotel. And that we, I remember the cocktail bar there was just, a, I think the drinks were like $30 each, but they were amazing. And that was a whole other, but that, you know, that's the only, I don't think I'm living a glamorous, you know, it's just, we're in it. We're in the cafes, we're in the bookstores, we're in the classroom, we're at home with our, with our laptops and our books, but that, you know, it's really, um, it's really gratifying. I do think it's important to remind students, whether you're in Kansas City or Minneapolis or in Paris, you know, that writing is fun. It can be fun, that there are parts of it that are rewarding. And and also, there's a community to it. The, the thing that the place that I felt that the most was in the readings that you host uh, at Shakespeare and Company. I assume you're still doing that. Um, oh, yeah, a, those a, are great. Yeah. Could you describe that just for the listeners? Yeah, I, mean, I have to say the sad thing was this past summer we couldn't do them because of the fire at Notre Dame. I know. Um, so the bookstore couldn't have them outside. But um, we hope to be back next year. And there, so um, I remember one night it was Zadie Smith and Robin Cost Lewis reading together. And, and you know, you, you are right across from Notre Dame. You're right by the Seine. You're underneath the beautiful Paris skies um, with people in the audience, but also anyone walking by in the street might join um, the audience, people perched on the, on the, the, the stairs across the way. Um, and they have a great sound system, actually. So it feels intimate, even though you're outdoors. And then, of course, afterwards, wine and book signings and then dinner afterward with the writers. So it is um, that I guess, you know, that is my story of glamour in Paris. That feels pretty, pretty great. I think I saw John Freeman interview Edwige Dantica uh, when I was there and it was terrific it was just really a beautiful program and the space was so 
amazing. And, you know, people stopped by and lingered who, you know, maybe hadn't planned to go. It was just, it was great. Right. Yeah. And John, yeah, John always does a Freeman's panel um, with, with great guests and yeah. And people buy a lot of books at the store. It works out well. We'll be back actually in the winter. We did them as well for our winter residency, but those are inside and that's a totally different kind of environment, but still great. I had one last question, which is we've listed a bunch of writers who are expatriates, uh, but they were all fiction writers. I realized that Suki and I are biased in that way. Are there poets who were expats who were important to you uh, as a reader or or maybe fiction writers? I just wondered if there were... Actually, thinking about expats, I think Sylvia Beach is my favorite one, although she wasn't a writer, but she was a a bookshop owner and also a publisher. She was behind the publication of James Joyce's Ulysses and she encouraged Hemingway to publish, right? So she was, and I loved how she um, convened a community of writers over there, which was so magical. And I feel like in a way I get to do something like that with our faculty and students in Paris. So she's someone I think about a lot. That seems like the perfect place to end. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Yes. Um, and we'd like to encourage our readers to go check out Deborah's poetry, Soft Targets, The Uses of the Body, The Last Usable Hour, and Orchid Delirium. And um, we look forward to hearing our listeners' stories from Paris if you have any to send us. And now I'm thrilled to welcome Mothingi Subramanian to the show. She is an award-winning writer, author, and educator, a former public school teacher, senior policy analyst for the New York City Council, and assistant vice president at Sesame Workshop. And she's published work in TheWashingtonPost.com, Al Jazeera America, Ms. Magazine Digital, and Zora Magazine, among others. In 2016, she won the South Asia Book Award for her novel, Dear Mrs. Naidu. A People's History of Heaven, her debut novel for adults, is on the long list for the 2019 Center for Fiction First Novel Prize. Mothingi, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, yeah, we're really happy that you're here. Uh, you, I've been told, uh, are setting a record for show guest who's known Sugi the longest. I'm surprised since it seems like a lot of people know Sugi for a long time, but mm -hmm. you met in sixth grade. Is that correct? What's the backstory That's there? That's right. That's right. We met in after school Spanish class in sixth grade. <laughs> I had just moved to the East Coast from the Midwest, actually, from Wisconsin, and we invented what we were sure was a new language, which is, Suki, tell me if I'm getting this right, Spamish, Spamil, which yes. is a mix of Spanish and Thummel. <laughs> and then we found out that her brother also apparently had invented that language, and we were devastated. Can you speak, either of you, <laughs> in Spamil for, for us to, you know, say hi to the audience? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think really Thumbel think plays a medium. I don't know if we that. can do That's the problem. Now when I try to speak Spanish, Thumbel is what comes out because I've studied it more recently. Um, I was actually trying to speak Thumbel yesterday at, or I was trying to speak Spanish yesterday at a restaurant and um, and kept breaking into Thumbel and was like, ah, why can't my brain manage these different channels? Um, we also, as children, regularly slept over at each other's houses and made each other New Year's resolutions. Um I feel like I would be remiss if I did not bring up a, our traditional resolution 13, which was to not talk about race, um, which we made in sort of like an amused, um, like sort of tacit agreement that the resolution would be violated about a minute after we made it. And, and so I think like which it always was, it always was every um, year the one on January 1st. Um, yeah. So 
Um, I think, you know, to have you on for this episode is especially cool because I think, you know, there's been this great tradition of American writers going abroad. And I think that it's time to like complicate those tropes and notions a little bit. And so it was a great joy to read your debut novel, um, A People's History of Heaven, which is about five teenage girls who live in an Indian slum that is at risk of destruction and they, they are fighting to save their home. And you moved to Bangalore, India in 2012 on a Fulbright but it wasn't to write fiction. And then you you used the Fulbright, you kind of, you stayed there for several years. So how did the project you proposed to Fulbright ultimately relate to your novel and your time there? Can you walk us through the timeline of your move and the novel's development a little bit? Sure. So like you said, I moved to Bangalore in 2012 on a Fulbright fellowship. And uh, the reason I was granted the fellowship is I had written a proposal to study Anganwadis, which are the free public preschools and early childhood care and education centers in India. Um, India actually has the largest publicly funded early childhood system in the world. So, and hardly anyone has studied it. So I thought I was going to do a qualitative ethnographic study of things like teacher quality and curriculum and sort of all of the things you hear about in education policy, uh, which I did. And I wrote a few academic papers about it. But one thing that I hadn't expected when I showed up was that these centers are also some of the only public places where women, particularly poor women who live in urban areas, can gather freely. So I was going in to do my research and to focus on the educational aspects. But instead, what was happening is that I was surrounded by everyone from, you know, the widow who had moved into the slum when it was first founded to a 12 year old girls who had run away from abusive families to precocious four-year-olds, including one that was visually impaired who inspired Deepa's character in the book. And a couple of things happened. I mean, first of all, I was just sort of overwhelmed by all of these voices and how they were so different from the idea of India that I had grown up with and had been taught. You know, I'm high caste and um, relatively wealthy by Indian standards. So this was not a world I had been exposed to. And also because just everything I had read about Indian women didn't fit into these kind of, you know, they fit into very specific kind of tropes. And I was hearing this diversity of voices that I hadn't really thought about before. So in order to process this, I did what I always do, which is write. And I started writing fiction. Um, and I don't want to say that suddenly I have a novel because, you know, anyone who's written a novel knows it takes <laughs> years and years to write. Have you been but studying did... writing before that? I mean, did you have any plans at all to write or was this just a thing that happened during the time you were there? So I've I've always written, but I've uh -huh. never formally studied writing. I don't have an MFA. I took one writing workshop in college, second semester, senior year, but that's pretty much all the training that I had. Um, I had already published Dear Mrs. Naidu at that point with an Indian press, but I'm, I'm pretty much self-taught. Um, but I have written my whole life. It's just kind of the way I process the world, and I, and I do it sort of compulsively. Hmm. So I interrupted you. Please go on with your story. I just wanted to know, like, how much training you'd had, or you know, before you decided to, you know, break into novel. Well, so what happened was I started uh, entering these short story contests, and people liked the excerpts of what became a People's History of Heaven, and so that sort of gave me the courage to try and pitch it to agents and a press, and then it it became a work in and of itself that in some ways I think is a much more truthful depiction of my research than anything I published academically. So, um, and then you, so you, you moved to India on the Fulbright in 2012 and you just moved back to the U S 
Um, so at what point did you decide, right, a Fulbright is usually for a year. And at what point were you sort of like, no, I'm, you know, I'm here for longer. Maybe I need to be here for longer. Well, so I wish it was that well planned. <laughs> but I, <laughs> I moved there with my husband, who, who is Indian. He grew up, um, he'll tell you who grew, he grew up in Tamil Nadu, which is true, but he actually spent most of his life in India, in Bangalore. Um, so we moved to Bangalore together. And then after, after like two and a half years, we were deciding whether to stay or go. And within a week of each other, we got job offers in Delhi. Um, so we decided to move there. So actually, I was in India for uh, six years, and I spent four of those years in Delhi. And then we were thinking about moving back, and we adopted my daughter. Um, and because we adopted her in-country, we had a two-year residency requirement. So we ended up staying an extra two years to fulfill that before she came to the U.S. So none of it was planned, but I think even my time in Delhi really fed into the, into the characters um, in the novel. Um, partly because some of the experiences are some of, you know, my own personal experiences of motherhood and parenthood. And um, some of them are also based on some of the research I did in Delhi. So I, I was working at UNESCO and I, um, I ran a huge countrywide policy project researching the new education policy. So I had the privilege to interview college students from all over India. And uh, I interviewed, you know, LGBTQ students, disabled students, um, Muslim students, Dalit students, and a lot of that ended up feeding into the book because I was revising it while we were in Delhi. But it was not calculated. I mean, we thought we were going to go for two years and then we were there for much longer. One of the things that people, I've had two expat writing experiences mostly, I, 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 one of which we've, dis, we've discussed with, with Deborah Landau, our first guest, which was that I've, I've lived in France for different periods of time with my family and once alone. Uh, but I also lived in Brazil uh, in a nunnery in Belém, Brazil, for uh, uh, a number of months trying to write. And one of the things that was hardest for me when I was alone, either in France or in Brazil, was that being an expat is very lonely. Um, and I found that writing itself is a lonely occupation. And then if you're in a place where you don't have as many friends or you know, you're not uh, embedded in the culture in a way that you would be at home, that I found it hard to be lonely while writing and then be lonely after. I don't know, maybe because you were your husband, you didn't have that experience, but I wondered what that was like for you. Well, it's interesting that you say that because in Bangalore, I, I did not feel lonely. I felt very included in the community of women that I was working with. Um, I made really good friends there. We had family throughout the South and I spoke the language, which I think was very helpful. In Delhi, I did feel isolated, but it wasn't because I was foreign. It was because I was a new mom. Um, so sort of a year and a half in, we adopted my daughter and ideas about parenthood are there are very different than ideas about parenthood here in the U.S. And I think I think it, it definitely fueled a lot of the um, a lot of the narratives about women in my book and the ways that they fight for their daughters, but are also constrained by these ideas of what a mother is supposed to be. So to me, that experience of being a new mom away from people that I knew and in a culture that was that was very different than what I grew up in, was much more alienating than being in, an, in a new country. And in some ways, Delhi felt like a very different country to me than Bangalore. I mean, India is so diverse and so different regionally that actually moving from New York to Bangalore was much easier for me than moving from uh, Bangalore to Delhi. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, this is also one of the classic issues with sort of, right, American views of, I mean, maybe just nationalism in literature in general, right? This kind of flat view of... Um, 
of what countries are like, right? The notion that all of India is one thing. I mean, and sometimes you see this the other way around too. Well, French people think that all of America is New York. Right. I mean, I sort of, right, in in like very, you know, in very hasty conversations about where I live, I often tell people I live near Chicago just to like make it it be over with. And like, that's so inaccurate. Um, And I mean, these countries are so complex um, and also, you know, have so many identities. You you mentioned a little bit that, um, you know, this wasn't the sort of depiction of India that you'd imagined or this wasn't the India you'd imagined and your parents emigrated to the U.S. from India and you mentioned you had family there. So you were not only an American writer abroad, but you were a diasporic writer returning to the quote-unquote homeland. So what were your expectations when you moved of what what this would be like for you? Um, honestly, I was I was scared out of my mind. Like I I didn't really know what I was doing and I and I hadn't gone back to India very often. I mean, my relationship with India kind of formed when I was in my 20s and I was able to go there independently. Um, and many kids that I grew up with had kept going back as children. And so they had a relationship with family that I didn't have. Um, really what I think uh, set up my expectations more than anything was my husband because he grew up there and he, when I first started, he was often an interpreter. Um, and I just expected that I wasn't going to fit in, that there were so many things I wouldn't understand. And I found entering these slums that there was this understanding that I had culturally of the way women acted and were in Bangalore that had somehow been passed down to me. I mean, those expectations were sort of embedded in my life, both as a, as a new wife. I mean, I think we'd only been married two years when we moved over there. Um, and as a daughter and as a, you know, um, daughter-in-law. Um, so I didn't expect to have that kind of familiarity. And I also didn't expect the diversity that I encountered because my experience of diaspora was that a very specific segment of Indians are able to immigrate, you know, people who have wealth, who have caste status, who have class status. And these weren't the people that I was encountering in slums. And it was interesting because they were very different than kind of my family's experience, but I found I was able to relate to them not only because of the cultural kind of background that I came from, but also because I grew up as a woman of color in the U.S., right? So I wasn't a classic high caste kind of um, wealthy person because I had actually experienced some form of marginalization. I mean, it's nothing compared to living in a slum, but I at least had had that experience. And the women would, uh, that I worked with would often comment that I noticed things that people from my class level didn't necessarily notice. So all of that was, was not something that I, that I expected at all. Um, so given that those differences, though, you know, uh, what did you do or how did you, what were the measures you felt you were necessary for sort of making yourself accountable to that community when you wrote about them and feeling like they were going to be satisfied that what you had done was not, was authentic and not a form of literary tourism, which is what expats sometimes get accused of. So this is something that I that I still struggle with, because the fact is we haven't found translators for the book in Canada or Tamil. Um, so the people that I wrote about actually can't read the book in its current form. Um, I will say that when I first moved there, one of the very first things that I ended up doing is uh, facilitating a participatory photography project. So, sorry, in non-anthropological terms, what that means is um, I met this woman named Grishma Patel, who's this amazing photographer in Bangalore. And we worked with a group of Anganwadi workers who are women who run the centers and are from 
they don't live in the slums. Some of them do, but they're sort of like barely one economic level above um, the people that they were working with. And we gave them cameras and we trained them on how to use the cameras. And they did a photography exhibit that they shot and curated and they wrote all the captions. And we, ha we held it in um, a studio that was started by a friend, a gallery that was started by a, a friend that a few months before had actually displayed photographs from the destruction of a slum called Ejipura taken by a white photographer that had a very, very different feeling than the photographs that these women took. So that was the biggest project I did, but I also tried to do things like small things, like I would show up at the centers with a bag of vegetables because the women always complained, but there were no vegetables in the lunches. One of the workers, I helped, um, I helped her fundraise to build a new kitchen and uh, plant a kitchen garden. Um, I taught often. I taught a group of girls English who lived in the local slums. So I tried to do as much as I could, and I also talked to the women about the book, um, and they would often be like, write this down, put this in your book, <laughs> you know? And not all of it got into this book, but I think most of it got into, I've, I've written sort of a lot of op-eds and academic papers, so uh -huh. many of it made it into those. Um, but I think the friendships I had with the women are the main thing that made it into this book. So um, this is, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. I, I know that because um, I I was thinking as I was reading your book about um, there's that very well-known grant a piece, how to write about Africa. And there are all the sort of tropes of the um, right, the foreigner abroad sort of uh, painter, uh, literary tourism is wits at or just sort of voyeurism. And this book really avoids that in a really interesting way. It's a consciously feminist book. It's interested in the politics of gender and class and labor. And you write like your point of view choice is so interesting. You write in a very authoritative first person plural, the collective voice of the five girls who are the book's main protagonists. So how did you come to that, given all the stuff that we've just discussed? Um, so I feel like you're the perfect person to ask me that question, <laughs> because that voice is based on my memories of all of our friendships in high school, right? When you were so much closer to your friends and to your family, when you clung to each other for survival, which I think is a very female experience, particularly an experience among women who are dealing things like marginalization because of race, because of gender, because of sexuality. And so that first person plural was meant to create this feeling that I used to have as a teenager, that my friends and I were this like single mass of people and we all believed the same things and we all wanted the same things and we all took care of each other. And this was the same feeling I sort of got from children living in slums and it made me think of my own childhood and the way that my friends and I clung to each other. You mentioned the word diversity a lot when we were talking about what life is like in the slums. And I'm curious about like, does, you know, I don't, I have not been to India. Um, so when someone says the slums, is there like a sign that says like the slums begin here, you know, or, or these neighborhoods that each have a name and sort of generally people refer to them as the slums? Just answer that real quick. And then I have this other question I want to add to that. So that's actually a complicated question. So I'll answer it as oh, okay. quickly as I can. All right. Well, as um, long as you want then. <laughs> okay. So there's notified slums and there's non-notified slums. What is what? So notified, notified slums. Yes. <laughs> These are recognized by the government. Okay. They often have signs and names. They often have public toilets. They often have schools built inside them. So they're recognized by the government as slum land. Non-notified slums are slums that just sort of pop up that the government has decided not to notify, specifically because they're in areas that have the potential for commercial development. 
and therefore can be destroyed because there's no basically paperwork. Uh. Now, it is more complicated than that, um, but that's sort of a general overview because nowadays as you know india's rapidly urbanizing being notified doesn't protect you in the way that it used to um but you know a slum when you see it i mean some of them have been there for 30 or 40 years and so there are some brick houses but for the most part they're tents um we talk uh, even in tamil we use this word in india pakka houses it's a hindi word it means like a real house versus like a non-real house so you won't see any pakka houses you'll see you know asbestos siding um I guess it's one of those things where if you if you grow up in a developing country or around developing countries, you you recognize when you see it. So when you mention diversity in those spaces, you're not just talking about income diversity, right? Um, yeah, there's no income diversity. Okay, I but, mean, if you can so what, so to what is the diversity that was surprised you there? I mean, it, you know, uh, it's it's that there's also queer people and trans people in those spaces. Am I am I correct in thinking that? Yeah, there's queer people, there's trans people, there's Muslim people, there's Dalit people. In Bangalore, especially, because it's sort of a center of jobs around the South, you also get people from all over India and increasingly from other countries. So um, we had Bangladeshis in one of the Anganwadis, we had Nepalis in one of the Anganwadis, and the teachers were, were just so adept at learning enough words in every language that they could speak to every child in their own language. And there was also just, you know, a diversity of personalities. I think there's a conversation happening now in the U.S. about how there are lots of ways to be a black person. There are lots of ways to be a brown person. But I think when people think of poverty and they think of the developing world, they don't necessarily remember that there are also lots of ways to be a poor person, right? Just because you're at a low income level doesn't mean that you're automatically straight or you're Mm -hmm. automatically cis. And I was a little bit ashamed that this surprised me, but uh, it definitely took me by surprise because when you see things like, you know, Slumdog Millionaire or White Tiger, you have a certain archetype of a poor person. It's usually male. It's usually straight, right? Mm-hmm. And in reality, a slum, a slum is just like any other microcosm of humanity, right? There's so many different kinds of people who live there. Yeah, you know, I was reminded um, intensely as I was reading your book of uh, Behind the Beautiful Forevers by Catherine Boo, um, which is a, a nonfiction book, which is structured in many ways, very much like a novel. And it also pays, um, unusually, I think, specifically for for nonfiction, it pays an incredible amount of attention to the feelings of women and children and um, the complexity of their of sort of non-binary identities and um, class and caste. And um, I remember reading that book and sort of being like, oh my God, how much do women and children get asked about their feelings? Like, why don't more people ask them about their feelings? And um, the agency that that structure gave them and the agency that your structure gave them while also respecting kind of a collective, like a community identity and community accountability, I thought was really interesting. Um, and you mentioned the character of Deepa, um, you know, inspired in part by the girl that you knew with um, visual impairment. And you also earlier mentioned um, the the white photographer, and you wrote from the point of view of the five girls, and we see this character who is a quote unquote foreign woman, and like what was writing that kind of writing? I don't it, inverting that power dynamic like for you. How did you think about writing that character and her role in the plot, and and was she always in the book? Because I felt like she was a almost a guest from a, I mean, she of course belongs to your novel, but I mean like a, a guest from another kind of narrative and that we got to see her from a different angle, which was really cool. 
Yeah, she actually did. It took me a while to find her, which is maybe why it came. It it does feel like she she came later because she she, she definitely did in in sort of the process of coming up with the structure. Um, so the photographer is actually inspired by the fact that often white photographers do come to India and they seem very uh, um, I don't know what the word is maybe fascinated with slum demolitions. And I think particularly because one of the first things I did in India was help facilitate this photography project, the difference between the images people from the slums picked and the images that people outside the slums picked was quite striking. And when I was writing the character, I mean, to be honest, the character was very much inspired by my own experiences and my own discomfort of being in these spaces and trying to be like the helpful foreign woman, right? <laughs> um, like what you asked That's me about I was reciprocity. Wondering. Right. Yeah. And and this I mean, I was that bumbling woman who didn't know what I was doing. But luckily, everybody around me knew what they were doing. And they were like, well, here's an American lady. Let's see what we can get out of her. I mean, that's like um, the fictional version. And I think this is useful craft thing that for maybe, you know, we I know we have a lot of writers and emerging writers who listen to the show. Like, I heard this phrase. I don't watch NASCAR, but I, and I'm, I can't believe I'm going to use a NASCAR metaphor. In this, oh in this, God, conversation, this is true. Like, this is a true thing like that. What you're advised to do if you're a NASCAR driver, apparently, is steer into the wreck. So if there's a wreck... Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I heard this on Talladega Nights. That's what it's from. <laughs> Thank God you're quoting movie. Talladega Nights as yes, a craft. Well, that is a serious though. source. <laughs> <laughs> That's a serious source. Steer right into there. the wreck. All right, so... This is a serious podcast, folks. <laughs> I find if there's something that I am nervous about in my fiction, as you were saying, like, I'm nervous about my position vis-a-vis the people I'm writing about, like, what I have to do is rather than avoid it or try to bury it, I have to go right at it you know, and try to deal with it directly. And it sounds like this character was a way for you to deal with some of those feelings. Completely, completely. This character, some of the scenes of motherhood where the mothers don't really know what they're doing, those were also definitely coming from my experience of being a new mother and trying to write mother characters. Um, The other thing that was really fun to write about this character, besides the sort of catharsis of exposing my own (laughs) hypocrisy and my own um, kind of... Uh, insecurities was that the photographer like me doesn't speak very many Indian languages and the ones that she does speak she doesn't speak well so she only speaks Hindi and she speaks it terribly so I wrote her entire scenes in broken English and it was so cathartic to have a white person speak in broken English while all the brown people around her were speaking in this beautiful poetry Mm. and it felt like it felt like <laughs> such a subversive. Suki's laughing because you know exactly what I mean, right? Yes. When you pick up these books and all of the diaspora characters are speaking in weird broken English, when that's not how my parents speak. I mean, there are people who speak like that, but not all of us speak like that. So to be able to write the white character as the person who was bumbling and couldn't form a sentence felt really fun and also really necessary in this context because the fact is, and Sugi, I think you alluded to this a little bit earlier, in slums, the women are the ones running the place because the men are gone all day or, oh, yeah. you know, there, there are a lot of drunk men in slums. There's a lot of men who don't have their act together. And they're also <laughs> the ones who are doing all of the activism. They are the ones who are in front of the bulldozers. They are the ones who are going to the courthouses and asking for a stay. They are the ones who are going to the wealthy owners of the homes where they work and asking for help. Like they are the ones who are in charge, but so often they are completely invisible in stories about poverty in the developing world. Um, so to have this, you know, this photographer show up and just be manipulated by not just the women, but by the girls, 
It's um, super satisfying. Yeah. <laughs> it's super <laughs> satisfying to read. It was therapy. <laughs> so maybe this would be, I'm going to have one editorial note while you were talking. I realized that that line about steering in the wreck is not from Talladega Nights. I heard it on the Bill Simmons podcast, maybe. Possibly. <laughs> we all know you've seen Talladega Nights now. It's, it's highly, highly, highly disappointing. I'm not taking that part out. That's just why I'm noting it here. But we would love for you to read from the book now. Would you do that for us? Sure. All right. So um, this section is an introduction to the five girls who are at the heart of the novel. And what's happening, um, this is in the first chapter. So four out of the five of them have just come home from school. And they walk into the slum and realize that there are bulldozers lined up ready to destroy their homes. And their mothers and their friend Deepa uh, are all lined up and making a human chain in front of the bulldozers. And so they go and they join the human chain. Um, So that's sort of the setup for the scene. There are five of us girls, Deepa, Banu, Padma, Rukshana, and Joy, born the same year in the same slum, in the same class at school, until Deepa's parents pulled her out. Deepa's mother, Nilama Aunty, says it's because Deepa's blind, but we don't believe her. In heaven, there are plenty of reasons to stop a girl's education. None of them are any good. Every afternoon, we stop at Deepa's house on the way to our own. We like sitting with her in the sunlight that puddles outside her door, our hands busy peeling garlic bubbles or stripping curry leaves off of their stems. We like sipping the sugar-strong coffee Nilama Auntie pours us while she tells us the day's gossip, rumors, and stories we'll tell our mothers. We like answering Deepa's questions about our classes, what we learned, what she's missed. It makes us feel lucky, smart, important. The afternoon of a demolition, though, Deepa and Nilama Auntie aren't home. There with the rest of our mothers, hand in hand, staring down the machines. The world smells like burnt rubber. The engines are off, but the air still hums. Joy takes Deepa's hand, joins the chain, and asks, what's going on? Deepa blinks her sightless eyes and says, the city said we had a month. They lied. Same way they lied about getting us a water pump, Padma says, reaching for Joy with one hand and Rukshana with the other, and about cleaning up the sewage behind the hospital. Where are the police? They always send police, Rukshana says, taking Joy's hand and reaching for Banu's. Rukshana's mother is always dragging her to protests, so Rukshana knows these things. The police, they left, Deepa says, told the bulldozer drivers not to run us over while they're gone. Are they coming back? Padma asks. Who knows? Deepa says. It's holy weekend. I bet they're all off playing colors with their police walla friends. Makes sense, Joy says, nodding. They don't care about people like us. You mean they don't see people like us, Banu says. That's different. You're right, Rukshana says. It's worse. Once, when Deepa was watching Padma's brothers, an airplane cut a whirring path across the sky. Deepa couldn't see it, of course, but she could hear it roar. Wow, Padma's brother said, jumping up and down and pointing at the sky. Wow, 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 Akka, what's that thing called? An aeroplane, Deepa said, stumbling across the jagged vowels, the serrated consonants, the syllables sharp as shattered stones. It flies so high, Akka, the youngest boy said. Why doesn't it break the sky? Cheat, what nonsense. You can't break the sky, 
But that aeroplane looks so pointy, the youngest said. Like a screwdriver, the oldest said, or a needle. If it did break the sky, I bet it would make a big sound, the youngest said, throwing his hands up in the air. I bet it would be an explosion. Don't be ridiculous. You can't break the sky, Deepa said again, more firmly this time. But really, she wasn't so sure. What would it sound like if you broke the sky? Would it be a jagged shattering of sharp-edged glass? A frayed ripping of overwashed fabric? Or would the sky break the way skin breaks, silently oozing and smelling like blood? This afternoon, when the bulldozers come, Deepa feels the air tremble, the clouds shudder. Hears the sounds of cooking pots and pressure cookers, light bulbs and radios, table fans and kerosene cans being thrashed into pieces, being beaten into the ground. Oh-ho, she thinks. So this is what it sounds like. This is what it sounds like to break the sky. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, those five characters are so alive. Um, and um, yeah, I just, I, thinking about what you said about the massive teenage girls in, in high school, I'm like, yep. <laughs> um yeah. So you're now back in the U.S. as we as we mentioned before, and I think that right one of the things that this kind of travel does for, I mean, I guess the travelers and also their writing um, gives them a new perspective on home too. And I wonder what that has been like for you to come back here um, in this time of political upheaval. You know, Baldwin and others talked about going overseas to get distance and perspective. And I wonder how the U.S. looks from abroad, too. Well, you know, the country I just came from isn't doing so well itself. <laughs> Modi is not. Um, he's violating human rights all over the place. I mean, what's happening in Kashmir now is, is just intolerable. It's a travesty. So I, I'm not really finding I'm finding that I don't really have anywhere that I find any kind of political comfort. And I think being here and also kind of still having one foot over in India, I just sort of feel like the whole world is falling apart, <laughs> which, is, which is maybe not, you know, the perspective that you're supposed to have when you come back home. Um, but I think another thing... the perspective of this podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that we are all doomed. Um, I think I, I have... One thing that has happened is I am very grateful to be back in the United States just because we have so many resources and it's just such an easier place to live. Um, I do worry about my friends and family in India because, you know, climate change is affecting things so, so intensely there. Um, you know, when my daughter was two, when we used to walk to her preschool together, she had to wear a pollution mask and she didn't, she w wasn't even phased by it. It was just like part of her routine, you know? So memories like that make me kind of grateful to be in a place where we're not quite at that point yet but also make me very anxious about the fact that we will be at that point soon. Um, but it's also just really nice to be home in a place where I know what's expected of me culturally. I feel like I fit in. I feel like the language is, you know, so easy. Um, so it does feel restful. But, you know, my husband is from India. My daughter is from India. I'm sure we'll keep going back and just, I, I feel like my life is very much split between two countries now in a way that it wasn't before we went there, just because India was a very abstract idea for me before, and now it's, you know, it's a second home. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Well, thank you so much for having me. This was such a fun conversation. Well, we encourage our listeners to check out um, A People's History of Heaven app from Algonquin. And um, we will look forward to seeing whatever it is that you do next. And I will talk to you soon. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. If you value discussions like this one, take a few seconds and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNFPod and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. Bonne lecture.